0: the security dna podcast produced by securityinfowatch.com i'm john dobberstein managing editor of security infowatch the editors here at security infowatch plan to utilize this podcast to provide detailed actionable information of value to security professionals this will include industry news trends and analysis technology solutions policy risk analysis and management Today Steve Lasky, Editorial Director for the Security Group at Endeavor Business Media, will be chatting with Will Kinnear, Senior Manager of Information Assurance and Data Privacy at iPro Americas, where he works to secure their products and networks. Will has been working to secure networks since 2004, when he started his career in cryptologic warfare, conducting cyber defense missions for the U.S. government helping defend, credit, certify, and provide digital forensics and incident response for the nation's most sensitive and secure networks. He also worked for Northrop Grumman, supporting special projects for the NSA and Defense Information Systems Agency, building virtualized environments for malware analysis, data brokering, and managing their cybersecurity program. And without further delay, let's turn it over to Steve for this excellent discussion.
1: All right.
2: Will, how you doing today? I'm doing well. How about yourself?
1: Good. We probably could have stayed another uh, 15 minutes just going over th- your CV because that's fascinating in itself. So <laughs> all the uh, government work with NSA and Department of Defense and Department of Navy is uh, quite fascinating. Uh, but uh, uh, you've, you've joined our industry uh, in the security side. And you and I hooked up uh, last month in Las Vegas when I met you at the... Uh, ISC West uh, event. I attended uh, one of your one of your sessions, and uh, it was just really compelling. I, I know we've got a lot of talk in the industry and a lot of angst uh, as physical security systems uh, have migrated more and more towards uh, network-centric based systems. And that's really made a difference. And I kind of want to start today's conversation with uh, what we were listening to you expound about in Las Vegas. And uh, you you kept a room of of itchy journalists waiting to uh, grab second helpings of breakfast and also hit the show floor uh, totally spellbound by your presentation. So hats off on that. But, you know... Amongst, you know, we're going to discuss several issues today, but one I'd like to start with would be uh, some of the challenges you presented us uh, in your talk and your demonstration in Vegas. We know that there are plenty, uh, there's plenty of publicity about network camera and end device vulnerabilities on the market right now. But can you kind of share some things with us about some of the most pressing threats that go beyond just the headlines that we're seeing?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, I think in order to do that, we may have to address uh, something that's been in the headlines recently. Um, I don't know if you saw, but last week, uh, there was a a report released, it was actually a joint report uh, done by CISA, which is the Cyber Infrastructure Security Branch uh, run by DHS, Uh, also the Canadian Cyber Branch, NSA and FBI released a report where they had found that advanced persistent threats had been living for years on networks when uh, they called it living off the land and so what that means is that hackers had been living on critical infrastructure networks inside of the us for years using tools that were just built in to these devices um, and to these networks and to these computers and whatever else they were able to gain access to and among some of these were iot style devices Um, so things like camera systems uh, were among these devices access control systems and other security systems Uh, so that the event that you saw us do in vegas was actually uh, the brainchild of uh, the brilliant doug from hi um uh, when we were at uh, ISC about a year ago, he asked me, he said, can you hack? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and so he was like, well, let's set up a demo where we show people how easy it can be to hack these IoT systems. And then not only hack these IoT systems, but let's weaponize them. Let's take these IoT systems and use those as attack vectors into the rest of the network. And that's exactly what we did in there. And that's exactly what we see outside actors doing. And these endpoints that we have out there, whether it's security systems or whether it's uh, your ring camera system at home, or it's your smart vacuum, or it's your smart fridge, or it's a uh, smart farm, these are great inventions. <clears throat> they make our lives easier, but they also create vulnerabilities inside of our networks that hackers can take advantage of.
1: You no, know, is is uh, when we're talking about. Uh... Business organizations and and, and and government agencies, is a is it a matter of malfeasance? Is a, is it a matter of lack of knowledge? Uh, is it a matter of lack of budget that these things lay dormant? Because you know, we've been around. You know, anybody that's been in the security industry long enough, you know, knows the stories about manufacturers uh, or camera manufacturers that send out. Uh, things to their integrators or to their vendors and and, uh, the vendors or the integrators never change the one, two, three password. So, uh, you know, so what are we, are we looking at just lack of knowledge or just malfeasance?
2: Uh, Well, I don't think there's any one particular issue. I think there's a lot. Um, so, there is a budgetary issue with some places. I have certainly seen industries or uh, organizations that are very interested in fixing their cybersecurity issues. They recognize and know that they have them, uh, but they don't really have a budget for it. Um, and then, I've also seen a lack of knowledge. And, uh, and I've seen a lot of hubris amongst um, IT personnel or amongst physical security folks or otherwise, uh, where they kind of have that mindset of, nobody wants my data anyways. Uh, nobody wants my network anyways, which is absolutely not true. Uh, people want your data and people want your networks. Even if you don't think your data is valuable, it could be valuable to someone else. But even besides that, even if I don't want the data on your network, if I'm an advanced persistent threat, I want your devices just to be a part of my botnet, just to be a part of my army, just to be a part of my weapon system uh, that I can use to aim at other folks. Um, Or maybe you're my pivot point. You might not be my target, but someone that you're connected to or someone that your network talks to is. Uh, So... Uh, I do see that as, as a problem. I, see, um, I also see lack of what I call cyber hygiene as a problem. So a lot of people stand up cybersecurity programs, but they don't really care and feed those programs. Uh, so just like you mentioned with the default passwords or passwords that aren't changed often enough, um, or uh, it could be not updating firmware on devices. It could be not having an inventory of their devices. All these other little things that companies can do uh, would really make a huge difference. And as a matter of fact, to, to, to ring Scissors Bell again, who I'm a huge fan of, um, they released a report a few weeks ago that was like six things that you can do at low or no cost uh, for your... It was aimed at K through 12, but really any organization could pick this up And it was things like, you know, enabling multi-factor authentication, keeping an inventory, doing policies and procedures, training your staff, and that kind of stuff uh, that folks can do. So I I really think that there's a a list of things uh, that are kind of pointing towards these huge cybersecurity threats that we see inside of our uh, different industries.
1: You know, there are a lot of cyber threats, like you say, that have been dormant or have been a persistent threat. For a decade or so now, but what are what are some of the latest trends in cybersecurity that you're seeing in general uh, uh, that affect overall uh, cyber hygiene, but also in particular the physical security industry? Again, because we're so tethered to network uh, to networks now.
2: Yeah, so I'll kind of break this question up into a couple of pieces. So one is kind of overall trends, and then ones would be kind of one specific to our industry. So overall trends is interesting because if you look at the last 10 years, maybe even longer than that, um, the quarterly reports from all of these top name brands like McAfee and Kaspersky and all these other folks that that release these quarterly and annual reports, it's funny because it's essentially the same things. Um, it's it goes back to what we just talked about uh, almost always poor hygiene uh, not updating their your stuff regularly uh, but the attacks themselves are almost always the same thing uh, phishing attacks have been number one for for five plus years now at least uh, if not longer and uh, and and we still see organizations struggling with that so I would definitely say that's that's um, uh, kind of you know the trends have been really similar uh the newest player to the game that i think is going to change is going to be uh ai and uh, and all of the things we've already seen folks building uh tools off of the chat gpt framework we know that's just going to get stronger and better as that kind of stuff becomes more robust and and the other trend that has gone up would be cloud-based attacks um, specifically cloud-based attacks have gone up so then in our industry you know, I think that, and, and I don't mean this in an insulting way, um, but I think a lot of the things that we do are really far behind what the regular industry is at. Um, so... So I think that if you almost look at the reports that came out 10 years ago, that's where our industry is. So things like not using proper encryption standards uh, for securing their data, uh, not using strong enough hashing standards uh, as well as another problem, Uh, not doing things like code signing, um, just kind of basic cybersecurity um, uh, 101 things uh, has really hit our industry hard. And one of the biggest ones that I see is legacy uh, technology, technology that's uh, 20 years old. I, I look at this stuff all the time. I go in, uh, anytime I go into a hospital or I go into a school, I go into whatever, I'll look at their camera systems, I'll look at their access control systems, I'll look at whatever else. And I'll see a reader, a proximity reader that's 20 plus years old. And I'm like, yeah, that thing's incredibly vulnerable. I guarantee you. Full of, of uh, vulnerabilities
1: isn't that a horrible habit though I, I do the same thing I'm, I've been in the industry you know three decades and I'm like you I can't I can't go into any facility without yeah looking in the corner and now looking at a door and seeing what kind of hardware they got stuck stuck in there you know let, let's address and I, and I don't want to pick on any vendor in particular but you know the elephant in the room uh, with people outside of our industry and ins- inside of our industry Uh, you know, the foreign vendors uh, from overseas in Asia that uh, whose cameras uh, had some, you know, suspect software on them and they were removed from federal agencies and then they've been shut down from other areas uh, in uh, in the government, uh, state, local and federal levels. Uh, You know, kind of just explain to people maybe who, uh, are, are listening the, to this outside of our industry what all the all the hubbub was about
2: uh yes so I believe we might be getting towards the uh, National Defense Authorization Act Correct. and some of the banned manufacturers that came out there right so um, so th- that that kind of all changed in 2019 with, with the uh, John McCain NDAA that was released. And uh, just for those that may or may not be indoctrinated, the National Defense Authorization Act has been around for, well, for a long time. Uh, And it's essentially our our annual budget uh, that the government passes. And what the federal government said starting in 2019 with the NDAA was, hey, we're gonna ban certain manufacturers from being procured with federal dollars if they produce telecommunications and or surveillance equipment. Uh, So some of those manufacturers, for example, were uh, Dahua, uh, ZTE, um, Huawei high silicone uh, these were some of the folks that were affected by that and their fear is that because of the way that the PRC conducts themselves uh, meaning that uh, an organization is never solely owned by the the people that claim to own it the PRC is always, um, the primary owner of any of, uh, of those companies. And because of that, uh, they have a lot of practices when it comes to handling people's data, and when it comes to handling people's privacy, uh, that the government was not in love with. Uh, the fear was that if these chips were installed in a lot of equipment that the government used, that perhaps uh, information could be siphoned off of those devices uh, that the government did not want, uh, and or uh, a backdoors could be left into these devices uh, for the PRC to take advantage of. Uh, It's certainly not a secret that the PRC has had um, some uh, large-scale intellectual property theft in the past, also um, some large uh, government data theft in the past. And so in order to avoid this, what they said was, hey, we're just not going to allow you to utilize devices that use these chipsets inside of there. And I think we're just going to see that get more and more strict. Uh, you know, they're talking about amending the NDAA over the next few years to ban more Chinese-based products. Um, and now some of these are for security reasons, and then some of these are for uh, political and economic reasons.
1: Right, right. And, and you saw, I mean, you, you saw what the effect was, uh, you know, prior to uh, last year. I mean, you had an, an entire Asian technology uh uh, pavilion at both of the big trade shows and this year uh you you had you, you and last year you had none so uh, it certainly it did make an impact you know that kind of segues in a, in, into into in my next talking point the advent of of zero trust uh and you know is is now uh, a, a big talking point and a big uh, a big red marker for a lot of uh agencies and organizations that are implementing their secure, their cybersecurity policy and procedures. Again, for some of the folks who uh, are in the in, our, in the physical security industry, but aren't really uh, sure what zero trust is all about, talk a little uh, talk briefly about zero trust, what it is, and how it's going to trickle down from the initiatives uh, that have been instituted by the federal government.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, cards on the table, biases on the table. I'm a zero trust fan, uh, so you're gonna hear that come out. You're in the majority. Yes, yes. Uh, I think the zero trust is a great idea, um, and I'll and I'll tell you why. Uh, so, first of all, let's talk about how traditional networks work. So, I kind of like to use this airport example. Um, so, if you think about it now, when you go to an airport, you go through your TSA check and they scan your bag you take your shoes off whatever your belt whatever it is that you do maybe you do the clear face scan maybe you do pre-check whatever it is but you go through that security checkpoint and then once you go through that security checkpoint you can go anywhere you want to essentially inside of the airport, you can go to gates that that you have no business being at, Um, you can go, you know, visit other airlines, you can go to any restaurant anywhere, any shop anywhere, any restroom anywhere, you know, you can really kind of have your run of the the mill when it comes to getting around the airport, Uh, essentially networks on a lot of, of networks now work the same way is once you make it past the firewall, You could do a lot of things that you're not supposed to be able to do. Um, and really our, our computer systems just aren't very smart at detecting that kind of stuff now. Um, and so the way a zero trust airport would work is you would go through that security checkpoint and then basically you would only have access to whatever resource it was that you were that you needed to. So, uh the uh the terminal that you needed to uh, gain access to or gate that you needed access to, the um you know whatever restaurants, whatever anything you wanted to. And every single time you tried to access something, you would be checked for that. Now, what a lot of people instantly tell me is that that sounds like a huge headache. But it's actually not because In the computer environment, all of that is going on in the background without the user ever having to deal with it. So truly, you're going to end up getting an environment that is more secure, that is actually uh, almost frictionless when it comes to security. And the way that Zero Trust is going to do that, it's going to do that through something called context analysis. So I want to give you another example. Um, So right now, probably the only thing in between you and your company's resources is a username and password, and or maybe multi-factor authentication. So if if I was to steal your username and password, I could log on to your network and probably just go hog wild, start scanning, um, looking for other devices, start uh, checking out printers, start going to applications, start doing all these other things, because these computer systems aren't very smart at detecting that I'm not you. They're not very good at that. So what Zero Trust is gonna do is something called context analysis. So what context analysis does is it looks at what is Steve's regular behavior when he goes onto the network? What device does Steve usually use to access the network? What times does he normally access? Um, what does he normally do once he's on there? Also, what's his job role? Okay, well, if he's not in HR, he shouldn't be accessing uh, files related to uh, to HR. Uh, if he's not in sales, he shouldn't be accessing sales resources and so on and so forth. That's something called context analysis, and that is what's gonna come along with it. Now, the way this is gonna end up touching IoT devices is that you currently have IoT devices as a, as a vulnerability as a weak point into your network because people can directly access them. They don't need to be able to do that. So we can take that ability away from people through that context analysis. And we can also use that context analysis to verify that those devices need to be onto the network. So it would, it would really stop a lot of attacks kind of in their tracks now. Um, to go to the other part of your question is, is why should people care? Um, well, the government has said you should care, and they've said you, that you should care with their dollars. Um, so, uh, so the uh, federal government has issued um, a, a NIST, um, federal standard, and also executive orders and memos that say that the federal government is required to make a full transition to zero trust by next year and uh, with that we expect that sled will follow so we know that uh, a lot of sled is already going that direction Uh, but anyone that touches or gets federal grants federal dollars in any way uh, they're going to have a a direct interest in having their networks be zero trust compliant
1: do you think these uh compliance uh regulations and uh the fips standards uh that are going to benefit those of us in the security industry that are dealing with the federal government are going to have that Reagan-esque trickle-down effect and and work to the commercial and corporate side of things?
2: Yeah, so, so I I think that uh, to answer that, so NIST I think has done a very good job, um, and, uh, and I actually really like NIST. And what's good about NIST is that if an organization complies with the NIST standards, they're going to meet a lot of other check marks that they need to meet. So maybe an organization requires what we call PCI DSS, which is payment card industry, which is uh, required for any organization out there. If you process credit cards, you're required to be PCI DSS compliant. You may not even know it. Otherwise, the credit card companies can take away your ability to process credit card information. And by the way, this happened to a lot of people um, after cyber incidents. Um, And then you have to pay big fines and you have to show them that you have uh, improved your security before you can get that back. If you're in healthcare industry and you have high trust or HIPAA that you have to comply with, uh, maybe you're in banking industry and you have Sarbanes oxley or other other things, uh, GDPR, whatever it happens to be, whatever your organization is required to comply with, if you meet the NIST standards... Then you're going to be okay for your other or for your other standards. CGIS, that's another big one for us, the Criminal Justice Information Standard. Um, so yes, I think that NIST uh, has done a great job, and if your organization strives to meet NIST controls, then you're going to be good for a lot of these other frameworks that you probably have to comply with and didn't even know. Now on the other side of that is FIPS. Uh, so for FIPS, for those of the, the you uh, who may not know out there in podcast land. Uh, FIPS is the Federal Information Processing Standard. Um, So basically it is um, approved algorithms that have been tested by very smart mathematicians who have said, hey, these encryption and hashing algorithms are considered to be secure. It updates and changes whenever an algorithm gets compromised. Uh, So a good example of that is MD5 as a hashing algorithm, Um, you know, has has been compromised. Triple DES as, as an encryption standard has been compromised and these are no longer considered to be secure. Um, and uh, and so, yes, by complying with something like FIPS, you are essentially saying, hey, look, I'm going to look at what the federal government considers to be secure encryption algorithms in terms of these have not been compromised. These uh, should keep my data, my customer's data, my employee data, and all this other stuff safe. And I'm gonna say, okay, we're gonna set that as the bar, as the standard that we're gonna use uh, for encryption and for hashing.
1: You know, it, we we've gone through three administ- presidential administrations where uh, cybersecurity has been given a lot of lip service. Uh, we've had a lot of faux mandates come out and presidential directives come out. Uh, do you finally feel uh, that our, our federal government is taking this stuff seriously? I uh, <laughs> well, sort of. I, I, and yeah, I mean, yeah. I, it's it's just it's kind of a catch twenty two because we're in this hyper hyper uh sensitive environment where you know oh you know regulations and compliance is bad but at the same time we want to c- secure everything we have well you can't have it both ways
2: yeah i i don't i don't, I don't want to go down the political path too much but yeah, I, I don't, I don't no, have it's a ton of, it's not
1: a political question it really isn't a political question
2: uh, yes um so my I don't have a ton of faith in any politician to understand cybersecurity. I don't have a ton of faith in any politician, if I could come out and say that. Um, and, but especially not to uh, to understand cybersecurity properly, which is why I am happy that a few years ago they they gave so much to CISA. Um, yes, and so what I can say is that I think that um, I'm not a hundred percent happy with some of the. Uh, some of the cyber-tasking that has come down, not 100% happy with some of the ways that they are implementing cyber-tasking. But what I am happy about, and what it does give me hope, is the fact that DHS CISA has really taken their uh, tasking to be this cyber-belly-button inside of the U.S. very seriously. They have released a lot of common-sense reporting, Um, so they got away from, I don't know if you remember this, but years ago when they would release reports, I mean, these were like, laundry list reports they had no graphics in there there was all technical data i love it but um but your average report yes so they've got away from that so now it's like bulletized it's got graphics in there it's really kind of watered down to us a, to a, a, a point that actually you know a principal at a k through 12 school can can pull that up and say hey okay this makes sense um so To kind of like uh, go back to the umbrella of your question, Uh, I don't have a lot of confidence that the federal government will ever do the full right thing when it comes to cyber. But what I do think is that between the initiatives that the uh, FBI, NSA, and CISA have done as they have come together and become more of a melting melting pot for um, cyber initiatives that they are, are helping to drive um, cyber policy uh, inside of DOD, federal government and uh, and internal critical infrastructure and, and other things uh, inside of the US. So I think they are doing a good job of, of kind of turning that around. Uh, I would never give politicians the credit for that.
1: Does this need to be more of a public private partnership endeavor with big tech? I mean, does big Silicon Valley need to be part of that? Because they seem to be part of the problem Right now. And and one of the it was one of the interesting takeaways I had from this past uh, security show was almost a coalition of uh, companies that are calling themselves little tech that want to come in and kind of step up into that uh, void as far as security, sustainability. Uh, all of that, 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 you know, that we're not getting from the big tech companies and we're certainly not getting from the federal government. Uh, do you think that the industry itself needs to police itself in order for this to, to happen? Uh, or, uh, you know, if you're running the world, Will, or you're running the government, w- w- give, give me three things that you would do.
2: Yeah, uh, Okay, so to kind of go back on that whole thing about uh, should big tech be the ones that have the say in it, you know, um, I I don't know about that because obviously I think big tech is almost always going to have their own interest at heart. Uh, So I think we're going to see a lot of that unfold as these new companies have been appointed to help come up with the rules for AI, especially surrounding chat GPT. And I think what you're going to see is you're going to see a lot of like, they're going to try to close the doors behind them as much as possible. So, you know, they they rose up and developed a lot of this technology uh, or in a lot of cases purchased this technology. Um, And uh, and then I think what they're going to do is they're going to close the mechanisms for which they did it themselves uh, so that the other people can't come behind them and do it. Um, And they're going to make the barrier to entry so high that unless you have billions of dollars. Uh, you're not going to be able to do it. Um, so then the whole thing is like, okay, if I'm king for a day, um, what would I do? All right. So the first thing I would do is to continue to empower uh, CISA to to do what they're doing. Uh, continue this uh, this actually this triad deal right now that we have with uh, CISA, FBI, and NSA to continue to release these common sense reports and these common sense guidelines uh, that come out around them. Um, however, I don't want them making any laws or any, um, any. Um, they can make recommendations. But but uh, yes, uh, the next thing I would love to see is a true cybersecurity council. Um, and I would love to see a cybersecurity council that is made up of people that um, don't have a financial interest in cyber, which I think is going to be very uh, difficult to do unless you compensate them in some way uh, through the council itself. And uh, And I could give you an example of that um cmmc was a was an example of that gone wrong um so cmmc has is, is still to this date not really produced anything um you still can't get a cmmc accreditation for the most part and these were supposed to be uh um individuals that were appointed to ha- as third party members to help keep the cybersecurity stuff on track and they've done a poor job of it because they had their own self interests um in invested and then those that didn't have their own self-interest they're doing this as like a part-time thing so they're not really putting much into it so i I really think you would have to hire a council of folks to come in you'd have to compensate them well um and you would have to not allow them to work in any other uh corners of cyber you know this would have to be what they were dedicated to um and in order to do it so one dhs um says a two cyber council that is hired by the government to actually help drive cyber uh, with no other allowed uh, ties to uh, to cyber arms. Um, and then number three, I would love to see um, um, training aimed at organizations. Um, and so I think that this could be a joint venture of, uh, of number one and number two, not that they could come out. So real common sense um, based training to organizations, um, that, that helps them to fix a lot of these uh very easy loophole or these very easy vulnerabilities that they have
1: well you just okay. answered my last question so I, that's a perfect ending sp- spot for us today uh will we, <laughs> well, uh fascinating stuff uh I mean we just scratched the surface and we could go on for another two hours uh I'm sure <laughs> uh we w- oh, we will definitely have you back uh, and I look forward to seeing you in Dallas. Uh, at GSX. But uh, uh, again, this is, uh, this is Steve Lasky, uh, Editorial Director uh, for Security InfoWatch. Uh, again, thanking Will Kinnear uh, from IP uh, Pro for being with us today. And uh, I'd like to thank my producer, John uh, Doberstein, and uh, all of you that are out there listening uh, we're expanding our coverage we've got a lot of exciting guests coming up uh, in the next several months uh, i can uh, maybe next week will or the next podcast will give you a hint of some of the folks coming up uh, in our next broadcast but everybody again thanks for tuning in we'll see you next time
0: well, Steve, I want to thank you and Will for this fantastic meat and potatoes discussion about cybersecurity trends and challenges we're facing today, both overall and connected to the physical security industry. Just a reminder to our audience this podcast is for you, so you can stay informed about trends in the security industry anytime, anywhere. To access our podcast lineup, go to podbean.com and search for Security DNA. You can also find our podcasts on our social media networks, our Security Frontline Integrator Newswire and Security Week e-newsletters, and the podcast page at securityinfowatch.com. Of course, we'd love to get some feedback from you, our listeners, about topics you're interested in. If you have a suggestion, send an email to Steve Lasky at slasky, L-A-S-K-Y, at securityinfowatch.com. This episode of the Security DNA podcast was recorded and produced by John Dobberstein, Managing Editor of Security InfoWatch. For Steve Flasky, Will Kneer, and everyone here at Security InfoWatch, thanks for listening and stay safe out there wherever you may be.